Okay, well, let's get into the Word of God for this morning. We're actually starting this morning, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses of this chapter. And I entitled this Bible study, Prescription for Hard Times. Now, you don't need me to tell you, we are living in the midst of hard times. We have just experienced a worldwide pandemic that's killed close to 7 million people around the world, over 1 million of those right here in the United States of America. And if the pandemic wasn't bad enough, the governmental response to the pandemic has ravaged our economy, has uh, ravaged our schools, frankly, and has messed with the social fabric of our country. We're facing a new banking crisis. We thought that was all over with in 2008, and yet here we are again. Our world peace looks more fragile than at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. We've got a pseudo-superpower engaged in a hot war on the continent of Europe for the first time since uh, a long time. And our country is more polarized than it ever has been since the Civil War. We've never seen quite the divide among value systems and policy proposals that we have seen in the last couple of years. And this seems to be headed to getting considerably worse. So we've got this macro environment of very challenging issues that can weigh on each and every one of you and make you really sometimes down on prospects for living. But then on top of that, there are the kinds of problems that plague us individually, whether they be marital problems, trials with children, health concerns, dashed dreams, lost hope. These are the kind of things we encounter every single day of our lives. And the purpose of this teaching this morning, I'm going to jump on the bandwagon that Paul was pulling in this letter. And that is to provide a prescription, to provide some direction about how we can how we can find encouragement and how we can not only be encouraged ourselves, but bring that encouragement to other people who are suffering as well, especially unbelievers. You see, we have the hope of heaven. We have the power of the Spirit of God living in us. Unbelievers have none of that. And so for the very kinds of things that I've just cataloged here, it could be an overwhelming burden for them. Well, our prescription for how to deal with tough times comes right out of Paul's letter because he was writing to the Thessalonian church yet again. We just finished the first letter, right? So now he's writing a second time. And this letter was written shortly after the first one and uh, probably soon after he received feedback from the delivery of the first letter. Uh, the news that returned to Paul was that there was a misunderstanding and maybe even somebody who was intentionally trying to mislead the church in Thessalonica by claiming that all of the end times trials and judgments that would come upon the whole earth were actually happening right then. The people in that part of the world were being persecuted heavily. They, they, were, they were persecuted by Jewish people that lived in their midst. They were persecuted by the pagan people that lived in their midst. Everybody was turning onto the Christians and finding them objectionable and worthy of persecution. And so the people in that part of the world, and particularly in this city, they're going through very tough times. They're going through white-hot persecution for their faith. And they were misled perhaps by a letter of, by someone who was actually holding themselves out to be Paul, they were being misled that the end times had started. 
that, that, that the judgments upon the earth were already beginning. Things couldn't get much worse than this, they thought. And, and so bad was it that there were people within the church in that city who kind of threw up their hands and said, well, the Lord must be coming back soon. Uh, we don't even need to do anything right now. And so they, they left their employment. They left their jobs. They left their trades. And they were kind of just hanging out, becoming a burden on the church there and the people who were actually working and supporting themselves. And so Paul wants to write this letter to set the matter straight concerning the times that they were living in and also the circumstances. Interesting little side note. This coming Friday, I'll be participating in the um, prophecy conference in Burlington at Integrity Church. My first topic, which I'll present that night, is apostasy in the last days in the midst of the church. Well, guess what the anchor text is for that? It'll be the beginning of chapter two that I will also be teaching here next week. The Lord orchestrated that, not me. It just really makes my hair stand up on the back of my neck because as I'm seeing these two events coming this next Sunday, but also this conference, and I see the topics I've been assigned and I look and it's like, well, right there is where I need to go for the prophecy conference, but it's also where we'll be next week. Uh, by the way, that's not a, a suggestion that you don't attend the conference if you're planning on attending it, but it just happens that the Lord worked it that way, which to me tells me he wants us to have this message. Okay, so he is he is giving them reasons to be encouraged. He's going to give them the truth about the times they live in. But he starts out, first of all, by writing to them about persecution, about trials and how to hold up under trials, not only hold up, but prosper. And so he gives them three prescriptions for relief in tough times, and I'm giving them to you because I personally think that many of the things that weigh on us now are very real and very, very much a reason to be depressed if you're not careful, but there's more coming. We have not yet faced the kind of persecution that I believe is coming. Got a little tiny taste of it yesterday as we're standing there just praying and cars are going by and people are yelling obscenities at us. That's nothing compared to what will probably be coming. And so here's some things that Paul shares with them that I'm going to share with you. And, and for those of you who love this sort of thing, here's some alliteration for you. Praise, promise, and prayer. He's going to give them reason to praise God in the midst of their circumstances. He's going to remind them of the promises that God has given them and has given you. And then he is going to offer this beautiful prayer that, uh, that really... Uh, sustains them and us as well so if you would stand with me please i think we'll just read the whole 12 verses and then we will um, take them apart in turn here's what it says paul Silvanus, and timothy to the church of the thessalonians in god our father and the lord jesus christ grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ we are bound to thank god always for you brethren as is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. 
and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There shall be punished, they shall, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you, Lord, for Paul's encouragement, for Paul's perspective, even in the midst of the most trying times. Lord, we know that the times we live in have all of those dark clouds gathering on the horizon, Lord. And as they begin to move over us, Lord, I pray that we would remember the words that Paul gave to this dear church in Thessalonica, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would encourage us now through these words and the power of your spirit, ministering them to our hearts. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen, amen. You may be seated. Well, Paul starts out there in verse 3, after the nice little greeting in verses 1 and 2. In verse 3, he he is giving thanks. He's, he's basically following the advice he gave in the previous epistle in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, verse 18, where he says, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So he's, he's following up with that in verse 3 when he says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, and he's going to give some reasons there. But notice what he says. He says, thank God in everything, not for everything. And that makes perfect sense. The distinction is crucial here because you'd be nuts to give thanks for getting a diagnosis of cancer. You'd you'd be crazy to give thanks for a world war breaking out. No. What he says is to give thanks in the midst of everything. That is, in the midst of hardship, whether it be something very personal to you, something that's affecting the whole world, or anything in between, we can give thanks to God in the midst of those trials because of who he is and what he promises he will do through them. The poster child for giving thanks in the midst of trial, of course, is none other than Job. Because in the first chapter of Job, between the 12th and 20th verses of that chapter, we see a systematic destruction of Job's life. The, all, all, he, he was a wealthy man. Perhaps he could have been the wealthiest man on the earth at the time. He had wealth in those days was measured in flocks, in animals, in, in livestock. And he had just tons of all of that. And, and we read through that chapter how all of these flocks and herds are destroyed. And then to make matters so much worse, his children are killed in a natural disaster. And then his wife, who survived, nags on him and, and, and mocks him. And what does Job say in the midst of that? 
In the 21st and 2nd verses of chapter 1 of Job, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. He would say later in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Now, what is the foremost thought on Job's mind that he could say these things in the midst of that kind of loss and trial? What is foremost in Job's mind is the sovereignty of God. When you can say, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return there, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Though he slay me, I will trust him. What are you acknowledging there? You're acknowledging that all that I am and all that I have comes to me solely through the grace of God. It was his election to bring me here. It could be his decision at any time to take me from here. And anything that happens to me in between coming out of my mother's womb naked and going back to the earth as dust is entirely within his sovereignty. You know what that's called? That's called eternal perspective. And guess what is the first thing we lose when we're facing trial, we lose eternal perspective. And I'm talking about Christians here. You know, un- people who are not believers don't have an eternal perspective. They have a here and now perspective. And so when the kind of things that happen to Job happen to them, why they've lost everything, unrecoverable, everything is gone. All that I was, I no longer am. I'm hopeless. That's not us. But the enemy will use these things He will use these trials in our lives to discourage us, to break us down, to cause us to lose sight of God, to lose sight of his sovereignty, and to start to to blame God, to lay at his feet, this is so unfair, why did you do this to me? We should be reminded that it's unfair that we even live another day because there's nothing that is intrinsic to us that entitles us to that, right? So what Paul is doing here is he's, he's pointing out things that are true about them, that are God-given and true about them, even in the midst of these trials. And I believe everything that he points out here is true about all of you as well. Look at verse 3a. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. Now, you might say, well, if Job were given a chance between his faith growing exceedingly and all of his flocks, he might have chosen the flocks. I don't think he would have. You see, your faith in the Lord is your map and your compass. It is what sustains you in this world, guides you in every step that you take in this world. And God is here in your life, allowing your faith to grow through the trials that he allows in your life. Faith, as I've said many times here, faith's like a muscle. People who lay around on the couch all day have girly man muscles. They just, they, 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 their muscles have atrophied. Why? Because they've never been stressed. They've never been exercised. They've never pulled any weight. They've never pushed anything back. And as a result, they're weak. Well, our faith is very much like that. A faith that has not been tested can't be trusted. You don't know how weak you are when you are just 
keeping yourself in this little bubble, never taking a chance, never stepping out for the Lord. And an, a, an easy, pain-filled life can lead to a very shallow faith. God loves you too much to leave you with that kind of anemic faith. God's desire for you is that your trust and faith in him would grow day by day. He tells us you only need faith as a mustard seed to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and receive him as your savior. And it's true. The very simple proposition for salvation, as long as you believe that with all your heart, you're in the family of God. But to walk with God each and every day, to be useful and used by God each and every day, takes a considerably greater measure of faith. And the way in which God increases that faith is through the trials that he allows in your life. Now, not everybody gets the same palette of trials. Some of you have gone through things or are going through things that I personally can't imagine because I've not walked there. But you have. I have other trials that have been in my life or are in my life that perhaps you're not familiar with. But God uses it all the same way. This is what Peter wrote about this refinement process in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Think about what you're going through right now. I don't know everything that you're going through, but you do. And more importantly, God does too. And so what God is doing is he's, he's using just the right amount of fire and abrasion to form you more and more day by day into the image of Christ. And as you go through this, this difficult time, that faith that you're developing is the most precious and valuable thing that you could possess as a member of the family of God. It's not gold. It's not silver. It's not herds of cattle. It's not herds of camels. It's not piles and piles of sheep on a hill somewhere. It's, it's having that measure of faith to be used by God in a way that is useful to him glorifying to him and gives you something you cannot trade, which is peace and joy in the midst of trials. So that's number one, that their faith is growing. But there's a second one there in verse three. He says, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. He's commending them. He's saying, look, you can praise God for the fact that in the midst of the trials you're experiencing as a church in Thessalonica, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, your love for each and every one of your brothers and sisters is growing. Now, why is that such an amazing thing? Well, it's because the general trend of people who are suffering is to get selfish. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I mean it in a literal sense. You get Focused on self, you're hurting, you're sick, let's say. Maybe you, you've got a chronic disease or you've, you've got a, a, a terrible financial difficulty that you're in. All of your thoughts, all of your attention, all of your resource is focused back at yourself. It's a self-preservation strategy that most people will employ when they're suffering. But think about this. As people of God, when we, when we marry 
When we marry our difficulties and what we're struggling with, with our love for the Lord, we're praising him now. This is one of our prescriptions for dealing with trials. Praising him, not for the trial, but in the midst of the trial. We're praising him because our faith is growing. And we're praising him because he loves us and we love him. And when you love the Lord and are focused on the Lord in the midst of trial, you know where your eyes go? First to Jesus, then to others, and then and only then you. This is what Christian joy is about. Jesus first, others, and then you. And this is, this is diametrically opposed to the reaction that the world would have in the midst of trial. They're not thinking of the other in that moment. They're thinking about themselves. And this is, this is very um, endemic to our society right now. A lot of people living in close proximity to each other. Everybody's suffering in their own private trials and tribulations. And what ends up happening is something that the American author Henry David Thoreau described. He said, city life is millions of people being lonesome together. Millions of people gathered together in a particular geography, all suffering through their trials, their tribulations, and they're, they're closed. The shields are up. They're not reaching out. No one's reaching in. They're suffering alone. Now, let's expand it to something that we know that Thoreau never experienced. We live in the Internet age. In the Internet age, people more and more tend to be isolated. The, 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 the younger generations that are coming up right now and are living a life in the Internet that, that many of us, have, I mean, somebody my age, I've been on the Internet as long as there's been an Internet, but that's not even been half my life. But... The current generation is described as the loneliest generation ever because the things they need to know come to them right through their device. But the things they need to do get passed over. What do they need to do? They need to have fellowship with the, with, with the family of God. They need to interact with one another. I need to help you bear your burden. I'm not, I don't want to get nosy in your business. I don't even know, need to necessarily know what your trouble is. But I do want you to know that I'm here for you. It's been the greatest pleasure of my life to be here for you for 20 years, to feed you spiritually, to help you physically, to help you in any way that I can. And that's because I love Jesus and Jesus loves you. And this is what I see going on here. The, the, the commendation that he's, he's giving to this church is um, true about all of you too. One of the things that you'll see in any recovery ministry that you go to is people who are addicts themselves. You turn for Christ down in Lexington, South Carolina. It's run by a wonderful brother, Pastor Steve Mattier. Pastor Steve Mattier lived on the streets of Los Angeles for 10 years as a coke addict. And he, he, he was trying everything he could to, get, to break that, that bondage, and he couldn't. And then he came to Jesus Christ. Lord cleaned up his life. He was so grateful. He decided there was nothing else he wanted to do in his life but to have other people break that bondage. And that's what he's given his life to. And he's helped countless young men do just that. The love abounding 
amongst the body of Christ in the midst of trials. One of the greatest gifts that God can give. So glorifying to him. So, so beautiful as, as a feature of life in the Lord. Look what else he commends them with there and, and gives praise for in verse 4. So, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions. Wow, patience. Their patience was increasing, he says there. He's giving praise for the enlargement of their patience. Now, to, to bear up with trials that are repeated, like, like rolling thunder kind of trials. It's, it's kind of the roller coaster I feel like we've been on for the last three or four years. It just seems like one thing after another after another. And you see things looming. If you pay attention to the news, and I know a lot of people don't. They shut off the news. They just don't want to know. I personally don't think that's a great strategy for living, but to each his own. I look at the stuff, and I see this stuff coming, and you wonder, how, how can we continue to go on like that? I, I saw something today where the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, has had since 2008 a limit of where the, the government will guarantee any of your deposits in a bank, up to $250,000. Well, you know, 15 years ago, $250,000 was worth one thing. Today, it's worth something else, and it's less. And so there's, there's actually a movement in Congress to increase the limit or just remove the limit altogether and, and guarantee the, the, the size of any deposit. Now, on the one hand, that sounds great. On the other hand, where is that money coming from? If there's a major bank collapse, the government, your government, has to replicate the wealth of the entire population. That the math doesn't work. So you see this stuff and you say... Um, to have patience in the middle of that? Sorry if I bummed anybody out this morning. I didn't mean to go down that rabbit trail. It's not in my notes, but I saw it this morning. I thought, where's that money coming from? On the one hand, I want our deposits to be guaranteed. On the other hand, so having patience in the midst of this, that patience is the beginning of a progression that leads to Christ-likeness. Paul, in another letter that he wrote, the letter to the Romans, he describes this progression that, that starts with tribulation moving us to patience or perseverance. Listen to what he says. This is Romans 5, verses 3 and 5. And he gives us this beautiful, it's a building process. He says, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. He's not saying we glory for tribulations. Oh, Lord, bring on something else. Yeah, my business just failed, but I'm still pretty healthy. Can you please give me cancer? No, he's not saying that. He's saying, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Read patience. I, I, I'm sticking with it. I'm staying in here. I'm walking with you, Lord. I've lost my home. I've lost my flocks. My wife is <laughs> nagging me, but I'm sticking with you, Lord. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. You move from trial to patience to character. What kind of character? Godly, Christ-like character. The kind of character that allowed Jesus to continue to preach the gospel 
in the midst of all kinds of opposition. The kind of character that allowed Jesus to utter a prayer from the cross, Lord, forgive them, they know not what they do. The kind of character that caused him to weep over the city of Jerusalem, knowing that the very city was going to be jeering and cheering for his death in just a matter of days. Jesus was the suffering servant. He was the man of sorrows. And yet he did what he did for us in the midst of those sorrows. Why? Because he had perseverance. You know, when you see some of these great athletes, um, Elijah Francis and I are diehard Golden State Warriors fans. And, and we love Stephen Curry. Stephen Curry is not human. I watched him yesterday and this little YouTube thing. Start at the foul line. And he's shooting a ball. He's shooting a shot from the foul line. It goes in. He takes two steps back. Another ball is fed to him. And, and, and he keeps going two steps back, two steps back, till he's at half court. Didn't miss a one. Now, the reason why this kid can do that is because he's probably taken literal millions of shots. And as good as he is, most of those shots missed. But yet, he had the perseverance to keep shooting, to keep practicing all these moves. You know, when he makes a half-court shot at the end of a quarter and everybody freaks out like, oh, how lucky is that? No, he practices that shot and he misses most of them. And so this kind of perseverance develops a character that allows you to be Christ-like in the midst of a trial. And that's what Paul is commending these people on. He commends them on something else there and praises the Lord for something else there when he says um, that, um, so we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God. Their testimony in the midst of their trials became something that was an encouragement to others similarly situated. There. Yesterday, while we were gathered in front of Planned Parenthood and we were about to pray our last round of prayers, this one nice young lady named Ty, who I would love to have speak here sometime, she came up to give a testimony. And she spoke about how her mother could not get it together at the time because she was a single mom. She was struggling with other children. And she was ready to abort this baby that became Ty, but didn't. But then, because their life was so hard and mom couldn't afford all the kids, she was put into foster care. And unfortunately, she was placed in a foster home that was not a Christian home. So she suffered greatly there. And then finally, she was able to be returned to her mother and her siblings. And then finally, she went to college. And in college, she came to faith. And as she came to faith, she realized that she wants to give her life to help people that are going through what she's going through. Her testimony is now encouraging many, many young people who, are, who have faced a miserable time coming through the foster care system. And she wants to encourage Christian families, adopt children, Take in foster kids. Show them the love of Christ. It matters. It saved my life. 
This is the process. Again, Paul describes this process in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He says, God comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation, that is the consolation we receive from Christ, also abounds through Christ. You may be going through something that's really horrible right now, memorably horrible, and your, your love for others is growing, your faith has been increased, you've developed patience. And guess what that makes you? A perfect tool in the hands of God to minister to another similarly situated individual. You come into their life. Hey, if I came into the life of somebody who was, who was uh, addicted to methamphetamine or was addicted to an opiate, I could, I could pray over them. I could share the word of God with them. The one thing I couldn't do is empathize with them in the way that they would probably need, because I've not been there. I've not been in that particular bondage. But somebody who has been, and who is now clean and walking with Jesus, and that addict takes a look at that person and sees the peace that is in them, sees the joy that they have, sees the love and concern that they have for them. Wow, that's powerful. And so their testimony is something worthy of praise. Now, he goes on to the second area of his his, uh, prescription for tough times, and that is encouraging them through the promises that God has given. He says there in verse 5, which, you know, all of these things manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. It's hard to believe, but what he's actually saying here is that The fact that your faith is growing, your love abounds, your testimony is sterling. The fact that all of these things can be true and you're gaining patience in the midst of it. The fact that all that could be true in the middle of these kind of trials and difficulties is proof of the promise of your everlasting father who gives you the promise of eternal life. Worthy of the kingdom of God for which you saw. He's he's reminding them that, look, this Life here is not all there is. You have been promised eternal life. You have been promised a life in Christ. You have been counted worthy of the kingdom of God, which you currently suffer for. If you suffer persecution at work because you're a Christian, if you are ostracized in your neighborhood because you're not one of the boys or the girls, if you get sweared at on the lawn in front of (laughs) Planned Parenthood, these are, these are minor but significant sufferings for the cause of Christ, for which God has promised you great and wonderful things. In fact, um, as we read in Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God to those are called according to his purpose. Notice the qualification there. All things work together for the good for those who love God. And are called according to his purpose. That is to say that a a catastrophe. Let's take this terrible tornado that just ripped through 59 mile path in Mississippi yesterday. In the midst of the people who suffered and have lost family members. There are believers and there are unbelievers. 
And if we take this verse at its face value, which we must, that would say that for the believers who've lost their homes and maybe loved ones, God promises to work that for the good, for their good in his glory. Now, if you look at the, the horizon, which only ends at this life, that's a, hard, that's a hard pill to swallow. But if you look at it in the scope of eternity, it becomes a profound and true statement. But then there are those who went through that same tornado who do not know the Lord. And for them, the only way that tornado will produce anything good in their life is if it humbles them and brings them to their knees and occasions them crying out to God for salvation. And then it becomes the best thing that ever happened to them. You see how that works? It's, it's, it's astounding. He's telling them about the future reward. Manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. And then you see in verse 7, and give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. You know, when you look at the different letters that the Lord wrote to the seven churches, there's a church there uh, he wrote to in uh, chapter 2 of Revelation, the persecuted church. It's the church in Smyrna. And the church in Smyrna was one of only two churches for which the Lord had no condemnation, no criticism of the church. They were the persecuted church. This, what he writes to this church is what he writes to you who are going through tough times and yet you hold fast to what you know of the Lord and you desire to continue to serve him. We read there in verse 8 of Revelation 2, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These, says the Lord, first, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and they are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. You see, that's, that's the ultimate prize that the believer lives for. It's a promise. The crown of life. What kind of life? Eternal life. Life in glory with your Lord. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What's the second death? The second death is the eternal judgment that awaits those who deny Jesus Christ as the Son of God who came in the flesh, died for their sins, and was raised again. That is, um, that is a great reward to receive. It's also a great punishment to receive. You know, many, many atheists, they rely on the possibility that when this life is over, there's annihilation, which is to say it's over, no conscious. Uh, life that carries on afterwards, no punishment, no gain, no gain, no hurt. But that's not what the Bible teaches. There isn't annihilation. There's eternal torment for those who do not believe. And he, he makes that clear in the passage in verses 8 and 9. He says that these others in flaming fire, the Lord will take vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power, 
when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. You, you see that what's, what's offered there. On the one hand, there's the promises of God for those who believe. On the other hand, there's the promise of vengeance against those who do not believe. And by the way, the very ones who would be persecuting believers, they have a recompense coming in their future. Now, the timing of that is not our timing. We don't get to call that shot. The Lord does. And it may be a lot longer in the future than you want it to be. But that's because the Lord is long-suffering and gracious. Now, the final thing that he offers as a prescription for hard times is the most obvious of all of them, and that is prayer. Verses 11 and 12. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is praying here for them that, first of all, their walk would remain worthy of the Lord whom they serve. Our walk, as it's described here, is simply our conduct, the external manifestation of what we hold in our hearts as belief, belief with enough conviction to actually live it out. And this, this, of course, is something that, for example, James in his epistle, he describes as being the only true evidence of true faith. He, he, he coined the famous phrase, faith without works is dead. A dead faith is a faith that is in word only, but not in deed. We can say a lot of things. We could, we could say that we believe a lot of things. The true litmus test of how deeply we hold those beliefs is whether or not we act on them. And what Paul is is praying for them here is that, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. The work of faith is just living out the gospel that he's put in us so that our witness to the world would be glorifying to God. Our witness to the world. You know, I used to chuckle at people who would put the little fish sticker on the back of their car. I'm just generally opposed to stickers on cars. And then I thought about it. I thought, you know, I should probably have one. You know why? Because knowing that thing's on the back of your car makes you very careful how you react when someone cuts you off, doesn't it? Right? Maybe I should have one on my forehead. Wear the t-shirt. Have the bumper sticker. However you can be motivated, your testimony must be glorifying to God. This is how other people come to faith. That's what drew me. The word of God working through the witness of the people around me saved my life. You could be part of God's solution to save somebody's life for eternity. And so we pray for that. Lord, may my walk be worthy, as he says here, that my walk would be worthy of the calling you've put on my life, that I would walk in a way that evidences that you chose me. He chose me. He chose me before I chose chose him. Let me walk worthy of that calling. And then let my witness to the world evidence that I stand for Jesus Christ. That's why I was so blessed 
to stand next to so many of you yesterday in the rain, standing for Jesus Christ and for the life that he has created, these unborn babies that he's known since they were even formed in the womb. So that's the prescription for tough times. Praise, give God thanks in everything. Uh, Remember the promises of God. Don't forget that you have been given eternal life. And pray. Pray that your walk would be worthy of the calling he's placed on your life. Pray that your witness to others would be glorifying to him. And pray that for one another. Let the love that you have for one another abound, no matter how tough times are. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for these words of wisdom and how to face tough times, Lord. These tough times are evident, Lord. And I I lift up the body of Christ here today, and I pray, Father, that you would speak into each individual life, whatever it is they're struggling with, Lord. I pray that you would give them patience. And Lord, through that patience, Lord, you would give them godly character. And through that godly character, Lord, you would generate hope. The hope in the promises that you've given to all believers. You've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light, Lord. Let our walk evidence the worthiness of that calling. Let our witness impact the world for Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for meeting us here today. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.